0: The Telegraph. the Telegraph.
1: Podcasts. I'm Dominic Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss a potential breakthrough in the grain deal, strikes in Moscow and across Ukraine, and how Ukraine's foreign minister has likened his country's counter-offensive to the Second World War Battle of Monte Cassino. And please do stick around to the end, where I reveal a very exciting interview David has been working on.
2: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally
1: reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war.
2: Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong, we're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 10th of August, one year and 167 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley and Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes. I started by running through the latest news from Ukraine. So there's currently a large fire burning, or at least still smouldering, in the suburbs of Moscow after another reported drone attack. That was early this morning. Moscow's mayor, Sergei Sibyanin, said two drones flying near the Russian capital were shot down by air defence. One was said to be near the Domodedovo airport on the southern outskirts of the city. We're not sure where the other one was. But Ria Novosti, state-run media outlet, Citing the Russian Emergency Ministry, said a fire broke out at a car repair centre, a big one, a thousand square metres. So that's pretty big. What's that? 20, 20 by fifty, something like that. Big old car car repair centre. Eyewitnesses on the Astra Telegram channel said that that fire had broken out after two blasts, likely caused by exploding gas cylinders. Now I don't know if that is the one near the airport or the or the second drone strike, but that happened this morning. There were also um, continued attacks on Ukraine. So Kyiv's Air Force, they're reporting this morning that overnight, so last night between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. this morning, local time, Russia launched 10 attack drones into Ukraine. Seven were shot down. Uh, they were thought to have been fired from the area of the Russian city of Kursk. So that's about 150km about north of Kharkiv, which I think is pretty impressive their radar can see small drones that far away with such with such accuracy. But anyway, the Air Force said anti-aircraft guided missiles and small arms of direct cover units were used. Now, those attacks on Ukraine, those, the, those drone strikes, they were part of, so yesterday, just a rundown of yesterday, they were part of 28 airstrikes and 35 MLRS, multiple launch rocket system salvos, fired across the country. That, uh, these figures come from Ukraine's MOD this morning. So in the northeast, Russian efforts to continue trying to push west were not successful, although they are continuing to shell Parkiv and the and the area. Such that the regional state administrator, Oleg Sinagubov, said plans are being drawn up to evacuate more than eleven thousand people, including six hundred children. So posting on Telegram, Mr. Sinagubov said the mandatory evacuation of fifty three areas was considered at a meeting yesterday. This is because Russia's really trying to push in the northeast around Kharkiv, and they are getting close to the city of Kupiansk. So he said the enemy has significantly increased the shelling of settlements close to the front line and continues to terrorize the civilian population, including using airstrikes. Under such conditions, the risks to the life and health of civilians have increased significantly. Now, elsewhere, Ukraine says its forces are, quote, firmly on the defensive. Unquote, around Bakhmut, they have been, over the last 24 hours, they repelled attacks in the vicinity of Klishkiva, which is about 5 k south of Bakhmut, and also the area just to the northeast of the town of Druzhba, which is about a further 10km south from there. There's also pressure from Russia further to the southwest, so just to the north of Donetsk City itself. Airstrikes and artillery reported in that area around the, uh, around the town of Avdivka. And then on the southern axis, Russia has failed to recapture areas around Staromayorsk. That was the town that, that Ukraine took a couple of weeks ago. And uh, that's under, still under extreme pressure. But you know, Russia has been trying to recapture that ground for days now. No, uh, no um, success there. Ukraine is still prioritizing their remedies, saying they, they're still prioritizing efforts on the Militopol and Berdyansk axes to the south, still trying to you know, break through and get down to the Sea of Azov. I think you know, a lot of people are asking why they why they're doing that because that's the hardest area of defense why don't they try somewhere else and I think it's because they judge that to be if it, if they can crack that then the rest will either either crumble or that that's the that's the main effort. that's the most dangerous course of action as far as Russia are concerned rather Russia would view that as the most dangerous course of action Ukraine could undertake so if they use their combat power somewhere else where the line might be thinner, for example, they would undoubtedly take casualties because you always do. And rather than dwindling their combat power on areas of a secondary axis or secondary importance, should we say, I think that they're, for the moment and until until they decide they want to do something else, they are trying to mass that combat power. And we've not really seen the, the big units with the with the Western kit in there yet. And um, we still think that a lot of those are being held not as a reserve, but as a second national force and as yet uncommitted. But Ukraine seems to be still still going for that that sort of first idea of break through the Russian lines, if possible, and get down to the Sea of Azov to se- uh, sever that, that land corridor. But so as I say, Ukraine say they are still prioritizing efforts on the Melitopol and Berdyansk axes. And as of six o'clock this morning, that's the last update I got from Ukraine's MOD, they put Russian losses now at over 252,000 casualties. Remember, casualties, dead, wounded, missing or taken prisoner. And also over 4,200 tanks, over 5,000 artillery pieces and loads of other bits and pieces. 600 aircraft, five uh, 300 helicopters, about 300 fast jets. No figures given for Ukrainian casualties. They don't publish their, their figures, which is why it's so difficult to try and get a feel for that and why we... so infrequently able to give you a give you an update there that's it for the updates let's go over to francis please on the diplomatic front
3: well thanks dom the breaking news this morning is that a temporary humanitarian corridor for ships stuck in black sea ports has been set up according to ukraine's navy the temporary corridor started work today and ships are expected to start using it within days they will have cameras installed on them to prove that it is a humanitarian mission, according to Reuters. And a spokesperson for the Ukrainian Navy has said that the corridor would be used for commercial ships blocked at Ukraine's Black Sea ports and for grain and ag- agricultural products only. Though a Navy statement has said that the risk posed by mines in the Black Sea and the military threat from Russia's remains in place. Now, I know, Dom, that in your latest Defence in Depth film, which I think is out at about 6 p.m. London time, which is 1 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time, that you consider one of the reasons for Ukraine's recent use of maritime drones against Russian ships and ports has been to effectively say to Moscow, if you want to trade from Novorossiysk, then you need us to let the, let us get the grain out. Maybe, just maybe, last week's attacks were... The things that made Moscow blink on that question. We're yet to hear whether Moscow is agreeing to uphold said humanitarian corridor. As I say, this is a fast evolving story, so we may well learn more in the coming hours. In other news, yesterday I spoke about the Polish military providing several thousand more troops to support its border guard as Belarus becomes Increasingly, bellicose in its rhetoric. Well, we've heard this morning that Poland is planning to further fortify its border with Belarus with about 10,000 soldiers. To quote its defence minister, about 10,000 soldiers will be on the border, of which 4,000 will directly support the border guards and 6,000 will be in the reserve. That's a, he said this in an interview on public radio. We move the army closer to the border with Belarus to scare away the aggressor so that it does not dare to attack us, he added. Unsurprisingly, Moscow yesterday accused Poland and Finland of threatening its security, adding that those risks require a timely and adequate response. Yet who can blame Poland when the Belarusian president himself is saying that Wagner wants to launch incursions into the country? It's farcical, frankly. And I should add that the consensus is that it is highly unlikely that Wagner mercenaries would launch such an unprovoked attack. Their rhetorical aggression seems more likely designed to sow discord in the region and distract from Ukraine, as I discussed earlier in the week. Now, turning to the Zaporiza nuclear power plant, which we continue to monitor, of course, apparently it was on the verge of a blackout last night when it again lost connection to its last remaining main external power line. The state-owned power generating company said it was switched to the reserve line, which had less than half of the power capacity of the main power line. So I'll quote from them, such a regime is difficult for the reactor plant. Its duration is limited by the project's design, and it can result in failure of the main equipment of the energy unit. That's coming from the power generating company. Now, we haven't heard anything from the Atomic Energy Agency yet, and there's no immediate cause for alarm. But of course, we will continue to look at this. And if there is anything further to add, then, of course, we will do so. Lastly, I spoke yesterday about Russian cyber warfare conducted against Britain and elsewhere. Well, it seems its own efforts are ramping up within Russia itself. The Russian government has stepped up its efforts to stop its citizens from using VPNs that allow them to bypass the state's restrictions on Internet access. That's coming from the British Defence Ministry. So some of the most popular VPNs have become unusable. In some regions of Russia, the British MOD said in its daily intelligence briefing, quoting from them, VPNs likely represent the greatest single vulnerability within the Russian state's attempts at pervasive domestic information control. As well as increased technical disruption, the Russian state has also launched a public information campaign attempting to scare citizens into avoiding VPNs by claiming they put their personal data at risk. Now, this is one of those stories that we know impacts our own listeners in Russia, some of whom we know use VPNs in order to listen to us without being tracked. That, of course, is the central purpose of a VPN. All I can add, apart from our thanks for your efforts in seeking to listen to us, is to say that it is really impossible for a government to control all VPNs, whilst they might be able to stop access to some of the most popular servers, there will always be others that are not as well known that can be used as an alternative, just as there is in China. Where there's a will, there's a way, just as there was during the Cold War, when people used to tune into the BBC World Service, Radio Liberty and other such sources of accurate information. I do find it fascinating that the Kremlin is seeking to scare its citizens into doing this at this moment. No regime that feels secure or in a strong position in a war would adopt such a measure now. It's arguably yet another sign of the paranoia that is seizing the higher echelons of power. I'll just say that if you are listening in Russia and this is a concern to you, do reach out to us in the usual methods and we will try and offer whatever guidance we can so that you can listen to us safely.
1: Lovely. Thanks, Francis. Now, Joe, welcome. Welcome. haven't spoken to you for a little while. I think it's probably because I've been away, not you. But you've got a few stories from from Europe, a lot lot of other bits and pieces going on. What have you been looking at? So, no, first of all, we'll look at um, a story coming out of Belgium
4: that there were 50 Leopard 1 tanks sitting, rotting, gathering dust in a warehouse owned by a Belgian arms dealer. The Belgian state had tried to purchase them back before because they were originally sold by Belgium to this arms dealer, but they could never come to a deal. But there's now been a deal to purchase these 50 Leopard 1 tanks by a German defence giant Ryan Metal, Ryan Metal. Um, It is reportedly being funded by the German Defence Ministry as part of Berlin's latest military support package for Ukraine. But that is unconfirmed and I'll get into that why a bit later. So of the 50 Leopard 1s purchased, we expect 32 of these to be made combat ready and shipped to Ukraine in the next four to six months. The remaining tanks will probably be carved up, dismantled and... Basically used for spare parts to get a, turn this fleet of 50 into a fleet of workable, combat-ready tanks. It's important to mention that these are Leopard 1 tanks. That's the version that was built in the 60s. They're less powerful, they're lighter than the Leopard 2 main battle tank that we have been accustomed to Ukraine asking for. But it's still a tank. It's still going to be important for Ukraine. They need lots of armour. As I said earlier, these versions have essentially been gathering dust in a Belgian warehouse. There's some great pictures that you can look at on our web version of this story, taken by my friend in Brussels, a photographer, Terry Monace. And you can see these leopard tanks just in a vast warehouse, like shoulder to shoulder, just sitting there doing nothing. God knows why they were purchased at the beginning, but they were by a guy, a chap called a Freddy... Freddy Versus, and he is the chief executive of OIP Land Systems, he's a former member of the Belgian military, and he purchased these tanks uh, in about 2014 for a fee believed to be €2 million. Euros. Um, but over the last few days, he has come out and publicly said that he has sold 50 tanks to a European government, but he refused to say who this government was because of a confidentiality clause. We've come to learn through reporting through German newspaper Handelsblatt that it was Ryan Mattel that purchased these tanks and they will take care of the... Basically, the cannibalising, as Dom has uh, kindly reminded me, that's what it's called in the military, and the reconstitution and overhauling of the other tanks to bring them into battle readiness with funding from the Belgian Defence Ministry. So what's interesting is, and I think this story tells us a lot about the struggles of finding a military kit now for Ukraine. We've... Western countries often complain about the fact that they have given everything they can, there's little left on their stocks, they're already eating into their own supplies to allow their militaries to be combat-ready if needs be. Um, so, sort of a year ago, it was beginning of this year, Belgium's Defence Minister um, had attempted to purchase these Leopard 1 tanks from this firm um, as part of the international effort to arm Kiev's forces with Western-made tanks. But he then, so the Defence Minister Ludovine Dedonay later accused the firm, uh, OIP Land Systems, of attempting to make a huge profit from Nassau, and talks essentially broke down. Before turning its attention to these tanks in Belgium, Rheinmetall had been looking to buy Leopard 1 tanks from a Swiss firm, but given Switzerland's neutrality, the Swiss government refused export licences, hence its Hence, it's uh, turning its efforts sideways. So, as I said, these tanks are going to be cannibalised, brought up to scratch, potentially upgraded. We don't know the full extent of what's going to be done with them, but they should arrive on the front line in about four to six months. Then some interesting words from Dimitro Kuleba, who has, as Ukrainian politicians often do, they've reached for the history books and made comparisons between Ukraine's plight now against russia and various other military battles over the past and we'll look back to world war ii with this one so in a in an interview with the stamper an italian newspaper dimitro Kalebra said the slow pace of ukraine's counteroffensive against the russians is akin to the difficulties faced by the allies in storming the ancient benedictine benedictine monastery of monte cassino in italy during the second world war So during that battle, British and Commonwealth troops fighting alongside the Americans and Poles suffered huge casualties in the first few months of 1944 as they tried to dislodge German forces who were well dug in at the monastery, which sits on top of a mountain south of Rome. So four separate battles resulted in the total destruction of the centuries-old Abbey, which was part of Germany's defensive Gustav line. And we, we often talk about the Sorovkin line in Ukraine in the south, that the line, thick line of defences, multi-layered, everything from dragons' teeth to fortified positions to these vast minefields that were set up while Ukraine was essentially preparing for its counter-offensive. So now we we throw it back to the Gustav line there. So once the Allies punched through that Gustav line, they were able to advance north of Rome, liberating the capital on June the fourth, nineteen forty-four, two days before the D-Day landings in Normandy. And this is I quote from. Mr. Kalaber. the counter-offensive is progressing slowly, but it is ongoing. The biggest problems we face are the strong defensive positions built by the Russians in the last year. It is not easy for our soldiers to advance, but we will do it. I think the Battle of Monte Cassino in the Second World War, at the start the Allies were blocked by formidable positions. It took four months to overcome them, and then they were able to continue and liberate Rome. We are in a similar situation, but I am convinced we will win. Yes, yeah, so that that is a sort of the attitude. We a lot we spend a lot of time sort of analysing a lot of pessimism from especially the Americans but other Western governments about why Ukraine is progressing slower than was previously expected. A lot of us look at the Kharkiv counteroffensive where Ukraine basically advanced ninety kilometers in a day. It's just simply not the case. They're edging forward sometimes hundreds of meters at a time. And that is a reality that Ukraine is aware of, but is not concerned about as Mr. Klaver says and then um, my final story to talk about today is a fun one connecting Germany and Russia again um, so a civil servant in Germany's defense ministry has been detained on suspicion of spying for Russia in an arrest that adds to the impression that Berlin has a problem with the loyalty of its defense staff. So German police arrested the man, who has only been identified as Thomas H., at his office in the Defence Ministry's procurement agency on Wednesday, from where he was taken into preliminary custody. While little is known publicly about the man's seniority within the department, prosecutors say that he approached Russia's embassy on his own initiative and offered to provide them with sensitive information. The wording of the prosecution's statement suggests that Mr H., And his offer fell on open ears in Moscow. He is suspected of collaborating with a foreign intelligence agency, prosecutors said. The case is likely to cause concern in Berlin with the procurement agency currently overseeing Germany's highly delicate 100 billion euro rebuild of its military. A multi-billion euro deal to various things like the purchase of F-35 fighter jets, I'm sure other things like Patriot missile systems, which is kindly donated to Ukraine. So an MP, Henning Otter, Ott, uh, for the Conservative Christian Democrats and a member of the Bundestag Defence Committee, he told to Spiel the government needs to tell Parliament why this spy has only now been exposed. This isn't the first time that Germany has been caught up in sort of spy scandals and helping Russia in various different ways. We had recently, December 2022, 20, so December last year, the arrest of Carsten Link. Who is currently awaiting trials on charging of uh, on charges of passing state secrets to the Kremlin's security service? Recently, there has been sort of talk that within the Alternative for Germany, the kind of far right AfD party, that there has been P, like kind of communications between them and Moscow trying to stop arms donations to Ukraine. Um, we we always knew about Germany's close relationships on the trade front. When it comes to relations with Russia, there's lots of oil, raw materials, manufacturing and just historic trade that basically Germany thought was appropriate to build and foster on in in its belief that close trade ties with Russia would mean it wouldn't be an aggressive partner. Uh, But we now know that has kind of all broken down and collapsed. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of information seemingly passed between Germany and Russia, and I'm sure it's going to be of concern but it looks like Berlin are trying to crack down on it, and I'll stop there.
1: Lovely, thanks, Joe. I mean, at that the point you were making there about uh, Dimitri Kaleba talking about the battle for Monte Cassino, its a—it's a point that's raised many, many times on on social media. I'm not claiming any credit for it, but, but yes, exactly. This this idea that. That we were able to watch so much of it, if not in live time, but then very close to it. And, and what if we'd had social media around on D Day, commenting on D Day and the and the breakout or the slow breakout from um, from northern France over that over that summer and autumn? I mean, would that have put a different a different spin on things then, and maybe forced forced act, action that that wouldn't have wouldn't actually have suited it? Yeah, social media. How? how yeah. <laughs> A curse or, um, or a saviour. Here we go. But the point you're making, Joe, there, about the, the story about the Leopard Ones, that they've been found or they've done a deal to refurbish them and, and all the rest of it. All our tanks, I think, I mean, Haymey should know better than me, but they're a luggage all, aren't they, on the eastern eastern edge of Salisbury Plain? I know my old tank was sitting there covered in grease. But this idea that you say, Joe, about this this issue with the Leopard Ones shows uh, is everybody doing everything they can or the polit- politicians doing everything they can. It chimes with me because it's something else I've been looking at today. Well, I'll come back, I'll, I'll sort of swing it back to Ukraine, but but just let's take a, a brief a brief sojourn out of Europe. So today, former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown has called for the Taliban in Afghanistan to be prosecuted for crimes against humanity. He's called for sanctions against the Afghan regime, Taliban regime in power in Afghanistan, and appealed to the International Criminal Court to prosecute those responsible for what he calls, quote, the systematic brutalization of women and girls, unquote. OK, so Gordon Brown, he is the UN Special Envoy for Global Education. So he's got, you know, you can speak out on this, fine. He said the evidence of crimes against humanity being committed by the Taliban since their return to power was, quote, overwhelming. He said it's probably the most heinous, the most vicious, the most comprehensive abuse of human rights taking place around the world today, and it is systematically being inflicted on millions of girls and women across Afghanistan. He said the pressure of a potential prosecution could force the Taliban to reconsider, and said he was shocked that there was, quote, so little international pressure on the regime. Hmm. Now, I invite you to reflect on that last statement. He is shocked that there's so little international pressure on the regime. I mean, I agree, if only people in positions of authority would do something about the Taliban. Now, Gordon Brown was, checks notes, prime minister between 2007 and 2010. He got what some people might consider to be a position of some authority, this top job, on the 27th of June 2007. On the 28th of June 2007, so one of his very first, one of the very first decisions he took he made Des Brown, no relation, but Des Brown, the Defence Secretary, also minister for Scotland. Now, you might think the Defence Secretary had enough on his plate at the time, what with Iraq and Afghanistan, the Brits had moved into Helmand the year before, we had been in the country since 2001, but moved down to Helmand in 2006. But apparently the Defence Secretary had so much spare time that Gordon Brown thought he was able to take on the Scotland portfolio, Scotland a quarter of the United Kingdom so not not an insignificant brief I would suggest. Now look the British army is apolitical but I can tell you that in private that decision went down about as well as a fart in a submarine. Gordon Brown who now laments the lack of international attention to tackle the Taliban and who was checks notes again, Prime Minister, for so little of the campaign in Afghanistan he gave his defence secretary another massive job. Now look I'm sorry, Gordon, you had your chance. This goes back to what I've said many, many times. Armies don't fight wars. Nations fight wars. Armies just do the shooting bit. If you outsource a war to the MOD and think it's an embarrassing sideshow and you don't really want to get involved in it, don't be surprised if the national aims to which that military action is supposedly working in support of are not achieved. And you, as a former prime minister... To me, you lose your right to say, more should be done now by those in power to tackle those nasty Taliban people. I mean, we tried, Gordon. We tried. Mates of mine didn't come home because we leaned into the problem. We were trying, Gordon. How hard did you try? And how much were you leaning in? I question. Now, I say that today for two reasons. First, because I hated that decision at the time. And Gordon Brown's general utter indifference to the armed forces when he was prime minister. But second, I say it to encourage all to use what, voices we have to let those in positions of power today know that we will not accept indifference and casual attention to ukraine if this war goes badly for ukraine i do not want to see in a few years time people who are in positions of power today lamenting oh something really needs to be done about putin and his murderous regime the international community really should pull its collective finger out I mean, the time to act is now weapons sanctions diplomacy I've said before it's our tragic privilege to be alive right now and having to deal with it, but but we are, and it is, and if not now, when, and if not who, if not us, who? Anyway, that was me, Gordon Brown, and the Taliban. Let's go to final thoughts. Joe? I wanted to look
4: at the border with Poland and what Francis was speaking about in terms of strengthening its border troop by 10,000 men, Apparently 4,000 soldiers would directly participate in strengthening the border and 6,000 held in reserve. What is interesting here is not the fact that Poland likely thinks Belarus will try and invade or allow Russia to invade through Belarus, but it's harking back to different versions of warfare. We often talk about the hybrid threats. Um, Lots of people say that is, for instance... Uh, cyber warfare but one thing that we witnessed and it was actually when I was relatively new at the Telegraph at the time when I got put on this story and it was um, essentially um, the Poles and various states in the Baltic that uh, border Belarus were suffering irregular crossings over their borders with Belarus and it turned out that Belarus was essentially bussing Migrants hoping to settle in Europe over its borders, and I get a feeling now that is what Poland is again looking at, rather than warfare. Because I, I I am quite sure, and uh, Don will probably have more knowledge of the uh, of of it than I. But the Polish military is quite uh, a force to be reckoned with. Um, They're very good. They're highly organised. So what i think is going on here is actually you UK- uh, not ukraine sorry poland are preparing for a kind of hybrid attack akin to the one where belarus was pushing migrants over the border essentially bussing them to the border and then saying you go across and uh make a home in europe which while poland has a sort of a right-wing conservative government that's anti-migration this will come of great concern that they become one of the main sort of migrationary hubs in Europe, which is normally traditionally held by the likes of Spain, Italy and Greece on the south coast, on the southern tip, sorry, in the Mediterranean. So I think that's really interesting. It's something that we should probably look out for as the days, the mumps go on, that Russia, Belarus, that they look at annoying and trying to antagonize NATO countries through different methods. And I think migration will be a one that to revisit for them in doing that in the future. Thanks,
3: Joe. Francis, final thoughts, please. Thanks, Tom. A crucial point we've discussed in the past fortnight is the Ukrainian army's desire to preserve its personnel in contrast to the way the Russians fought this war. I want to thank a listener called Austin from Colorado in the US for providing an interesting reflection on this, weaving in his own family history and tactical insights from the Second World War, a conflict that Joe touched on earlier. So I'll, I'll read from his email to us. I am a combat veteran and former member of the 10th Mountain Division Light Infantry. I served in Afghanistan before being honourably discharged from the army and then studying international relations at Denver University. Given my background, I follow the Ukraine conflict very closely. I don't believe I've missed a single episode of your podcast since the invasion began. Thank you very much for that, Austin. I've been reading into the story of the 32nd Infantry Division's brutally hellish campaign against the Japanese in Papua New Guinea in World War II. My grandfather served with the 32nd and was shot and ended up behind enemy lines before eventually escaping with the help of locals and being sent home where he was told he'd never walk again. He did eventually recover, although he lost all feeling in his left leg below the knee and suffered from his injury and experiences until he passed away a few years ago. Growing up, I heard some of his stories. He spoke bitterly of his experiences, in particular his assessment of General Douglas MacArthur, who of course was the US commander of the Pacific Theatre during the war. He, along with many of the men of the 32nd, despised MacArthur. After the conflict, they actively worked against his political aspirations, and some believe it was their efforts that prevented MacArthur from a successful run for US president. The main crux of their criticism was his impatience with progress. He famously called the men of the 32nd Division cowards. General Harding, who commanded the 32nd, fully appreciated the insane terrain, lack of supplies, disease and extremely well fortified and defended positions of the Japanese. A former instructor at Fort Benning's Infantry School, Harding had developed a new set of battle tactics that put a premium on ingenuity and discouraged high casualty rates. In 1937, as editor of the Infantry Journal, he wrote, Since wars began, this do-something obsession has driven leaders to order attacks with no prospect of success. The enemy's position is immensely strong, but their masters are impatient. We attack and the history of military disaster is enriched by another bloody repulse. As a result of these beliefs, Harding was dismissed and relieved of command by MacArthur. While ultimately the 32nd did prevail in Papua New Guinea, I read these sentences with much interest in light of the Ukraine counteroffensive. I finally understood why my, gen- my grandfather put such respect for General Harding. And such hatred towards General MacArthur. Without grenades, mortars, flamethrowers or artillery, my grandfather and his fellow soldiers faced nearly impossible odds against well-entrenched and defended Japanese positions, even without accounting for their starved and diseased condition. My grandfather weighed 165 pounds when he shipped off. After he was shot and returned home, he weighed less than 100 now, I see a great deal of similarity between the political and global expectations of the Ukrainian counteroffensive and the impatience. The world expects a rapid onslaught. However, the greater military question analysis here asks, at what cost? To adapt the earlier quotes by Harding, why needlessly sacrifice men to the altar of global impatience? Yes, the political war is just as important to consideration as the, global, as the ground conflict. However, as a former soldier myself, each casualty is a deep loss that words alone cannot possibly convey. The men and women serving in the Ukraine war each represent family, hopes, dreams. They are daily silenced, their future stories buried under a few feet of mud, topped with a cross or stone, never to be completed or shared. Harding recognised this and adopted combat methods designed to preserve the greatest amount of life. He focused on small battle movements that gradually took enemy positions rather than suicidal charges. Perhaps his methods weren't as glorious, and they certainly didn't achieve the huge strides towards MacArthur desired in short time. However, his approach saved countless lives and earned him the undying respect of his men. Ultimately, the US Army adapted and adopted Harding's tactics, and today the frontal charges advocated by MacArthur are considered archaic, brutal and ill-advised. As anxious as the world is for Ukraine's success, I think a lesson can be drawn here. The Russian position is immensely strong and the masters are impatient. But to focus on rapid advances drenched in the blood of Ukrainians is surely not the answer. Success will come and breakthroughs are still likely, but the preservation of lives remains paramount to that. Ukraine understands this, even if much of the world is too impatient to realise it. So, thank you very much, Austin, for those insights.
1: Well, thank you, Francis and Austin. Thanks so much for sending that in and the reflections there on your and your grandfather. Please do continue to send your your emails in. We do mean it when we say it. We read every email. We get some lovely emails uh, addressed to whoever at the Telegraph reads emails. It's us. <laughs> it's only us. It's me, Francis, David, Charles, and Louisa who who who, who produce it. I mean, but we, we do read every email. Thank you for listening to Ukraine The Latest. The exciting thing I mentioned at the start is that David has had a sit-down interview with Sergei Plokhy, the celebrated historian and professor of Ukrainian history. You can get early access to that interview now by clicking the link in the show notes. It will come out in a few weeks' time, but if you want to hear it right now, please do click on the link. Here's a short snippet of that interview.
4: As a historian, how useful do you find the comparisons with the policy of appeasement and the rise of Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler, and the, therefore the, the Second World War? To some extent, it obviously illuminates certain truths about the regime and, and its nature. But do you find that it, sometimes the metaphor goes too far? Do you find it a useful thing to employ?
2: I certainly find it useful. I also find it frightening. Frightening in the sense that the parallels are so clear, so striking. Mostly, people when they talk about the, the the parallels, they talk about the Nazism, and the question is whether the Putin's regime is fascist or not, and there is a debate going on there. But for me, uh, the, the the most striking parallel is uh, actually of of a different of a different kind. It's not about the comparison of the Russian ideology of Putinism and let's say Nazism. Uh, for me, this parallels of a different kind. You see a um, great uh, depression in the late 20s and early 30s. And as a result of that, you see the rise of the xenophobia in general, isolationism, different forms of nationalism, populism, rise of uh, authoritarian tendencies and autocratic regimes. And if you don't see that after the Great Recession that we went through, you certainly don't want to see certain things, because that's, that's exactly the parallel with what was happening in the 1930s. Looking at Germany of the late 30s and Russia of the beginning of this century, again, the parallels are striking. The two countries, they lost to the war. That in case of Germany, that was World War One, and in case of the Soviet Union, that was the Cold War. And um, they uh, were dealing with the question of the so called divided nation. Uh, the Germans are obsessed with bringing together within the borders of one greater Germany of uh, the Germans the German speakers. Putin's Russia starts to be obsessed with annexation of the territories and bringing. Crimea, let's say, back home. So the parallels between the annexation of Crimea and Anschluss of um, Austria are, again, very obvious, and they were made, uh, those comparisons and those parallels were drawn by Western historians who were not the first to point to that there were Russian historians like Professor Zubov of the Moscow Institute of International Relations who eventually lost his job for, for publishing, you know, things like that. So, uh, yeah, for me, parallels are unmistakable, and the the frightening there in the way that somehow I and probably many others are linked with this belief that somehow we as humanity, we learn from our past, we learn from our mistakes. And uh, looking at these parallels, really uncomfortable idea comes to mind that actually we don't learn, or we don't learn enough.
1: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk and we do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear. The executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.